The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Ladies and gentlemen, Real Paranormal Activity is proud to present Terry's Mysterious Moments. Welcome to Terry's Mysterious Moments, Season 3. Thank you for joining me on this journey into the odd, the weird, the strange. Hope you'll enjoy it. Now, on with the show. Good evening, everybody. This is Terry from Texas with a new episode of Terry's Mysterious Moments. Texas roadways sometimes harbor eerie mysteries. Sometimes they harbor momentary frights. But sometimes, and all too often, they can harbor outright horrors. Such is the case here. The Haunted Highland Lakes, Ghost of Murderer Al Lackey, Rome's US-281. Along a stretch of US-281, south of Johnson City toward Blanco, a car rockets along. The driver, nodding his head along with the song on the radio, keeps his eyes on the highway as the sun settles behind the rolling hills to his right. A last dash of sunlight reaches across the landscape and falls upon a man walking beside the road. The man turns and sticks out his thumb. The driver, not wishing to leave someone stranded at night on the highway, pulls over just past the man. The stranger, the driver notices, is very tall and has a full gray beard to match his hair. He backs up next to the man. Do you need a ride? The driver calls out. The man stands there and doesn't answer. Hey, do you need a ride? The driver yells out again thinking the tall man didn't hear him. This time, the man leans down and peers into the car. He stares at the driver. The stranger's neckerchief is red with blood, and it catches the driver's eyes. He looks at the bandana, back to the man's face, and into the man's hand, which is now tucked up close to his chest. The man holds a knife, covered in blood. He smiles at the driver. Six are still living, whom I intended to kill, he says, 
But before he can say anything else, the driver throws the car into drive and punches down on the accelerator and takes off. The tall gray-bearded man stands up and watches the car go. Then, as the light slips behind the hills, the figure of Al Lackey fades as well. In two days of terror in Johnson City in August 1885, the hot Texas sun beat down across the hills near the Pedernales River in Hickory Creek outside Johnson City. With the rumors that had been spreading about him and his teenage daughter swirling around inside his head, Blanco County farmer Albert Al Lackey climbed up on his horse and rode off to John Green's home under the pretense of borrowing money. The Greens weren't home when Al arrived, but he entered the house. It wasn't money he was hunting. Instead, he took John Green's Winchester rifle, capable of holding 12 rounds, and headed out. On his own, Al cast an imposing figure. Big by nature and strong by labor, Al wasn't a man to trifle with if he came at you with just his hands. But with the Winchester rifle and a vengeance burning deep inside him on August 24, 1885, Al was death cutting through the Texas hills. Al's first stop was the home of his brother, Nathaniel Greenberry, nicknamed Barry Lackey. He found Barry and his wife at home and with one shot from the Winchester, killed his sister-in-law. Barry, however, managed to flee, taking off across the land to evade his brother. Upon hearing the gunshot, one of Barry's sons also ran. Al chased his brother through the field and the trees, eventually cornering him about 100 yards from the house. Barry's son, apparently not far off, heard his father beg for mercy. Al responded with one shot to his brother's head. He then returned to the house, got on his horse, and took off. Barry's son, though grief-stricken and scared, headed for help, most likely to Johnson City. Al continued on, though, pressed by the hatred he felt for members of his own family and for the community. People had been saying Al was having improper relations with his teen daughter and possibly with the stepdaughter. He couldn't take the gossip. He had to put an end to it. He rode off to the home of an older couple, Mr. and Mrs. J.C. Stokes. Here, Al kept up his deadly work gunning both down with one shot each from the Winchester. He then turned the rifle on the couple's daughter, Fanny Stokes Lackey, and shot her down. She was the wife of Al's stepson, Charles. Then he rode for home. At his house, Al shot and killed his daughter, Martha. He then turned his attention to his wife, Allie. He pulled the Winchester's trigger, but nothing happened. As he fumbled with the rifle, which apparently only had six rounds in it, Allie ran. Without the rifle, Al pulled out a knife and chased his wife. She headed for a nearby creek, every step taking her a bit farther from the horror. But Al kept coming, bent on killing her. Allie raced through a thicket of trees, her heart pounding, her eyes filled with tears, after seeing her own daughter gunned down. Somewhere in the mess of trees, though, she threw her husband off her trail. 
Whether he was trying to kill himself or throw suspicion off himself, Al took the knife, placed it against his throat, and sliced across it. Then, after wrapping a bandana around his neck, he got to his horse, climbed on, and headed toward town. Along the way, Al met up with Al Bundick, or Thomas Brunswick, depending on which account you read, and the two rode a ways together, Bundick unaware of the slaughter. The man noticed Lackey's bandana, but thought it was just red in color, not blood-soaked. During the ride, when Lackey trailed just behind Bundick, the murderer attacked. He lunged at Bundick with a knife, cutting the man several times. Bundick got away before Lackey could land a fatal blow, but it would be several weeks before the man was fully recovered. Lackey, though, rode for town. About two miles from Johnson City, however, the sheriff came upon him and captured Al without a fight. The sheriff first took him to Johnson City, where a doctor tended to his wounds. Al apparently tried to claim he was attacked as well, but by this time, his nephew and wife had recounted the day's events, and the sheriff wasn't falling for the murderer's tale. After the doctor finished, the sheriff took him to Blanco, which was the county seat at the time, and put him in jail to await trial. On August 25th, the bodies of Al's victims were laid to rest. As word spread about Al's murderous trail, anger boiled over. This time it wasn't one man chasing several, but a mob of 50 to 60 hunting one murderer. According to reports, the mob made their way to the county jail after dark on August 26th. They overpowered the deputies and the sheriff and grabbed Al Lackey. They took the murderer north for about two miles. When they came across an oak tree, they deemed suitable for hanging. They made Al stand on a box in the back of a wagon with the noose around his neck. When asked if he had killed everyone he meant to, he reportedly said, Six are still living whom I intended to kill. He was supposed to jump off the box, but apparently didn't. And when the wagon moved, Al fell to the end of the rope. But some say the rope wasn't strong enough to snap the man's neck, so instead of dying instantly, Al hung there, slowly strangling for several minutes. The mob, content to let Al suffer for the murders he committed, let him slowly die. They rode off and left the body hanging from the tree. Next morning, August 27th, Esquire Llewellyn Robinson held an inquest at the place of the hanging. Professor W. H. Bruce made a pen sketch of the scene. Lackey was a large man with iron-gray hair and mustache and looked a terrible and gruesome giant as he swung in the air. The tree from which the mob allegedly hanged Al Lackey was next to a road to which US 281 now runs parallel, and since that hanging, people have reported seeing a man hitchhiking along 281 between Blanco and Johnson City, often during the twilight hours. He appears to be wearing a red bandana around his neck, and those who have stopped to give him a ride claim the man is holding a knife. So, if you're driving between Blanco and Johnson City and spy a tall, 
hitchhiking, gray-bearded and gray-haired man with a bandana around his neck, do yourself a favor. Don't pull over to give him a ride. You don't want to be Al Lackey's number seven because it won't be your lucky number. Does Al Lackey still haunt the areas of his great sin and of his final human judgment? Be interesting to find out. Don't you think? In Puerto Rico, we call ourselves Boricua. We are proud, passionate, and full of life. On our island, adventure finds you. Strangers aren't strangers for long. The size of the audience doesn't change the beauty of the music. And we celebrate every last ray of sun. Live Boricua. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. In San Antonio in 1853, a man named John McMullen found himself a victim of an assault and murder. Subsequently, a trunk full of letters and an old black hat were abandoned outside the door of a courthouse in San Antonio de Bejar. It was all that remained of the possessions of one of the town's wealthiest residents, an Irishman named John McMullen, who had been murdered in January of that year. According to Bear County's probate records for 1853, the trunk contained, quote, papers and personal letters which are of no value, unquote. Having been declared valueless, the contents of that trunk were probably destroyed. But an archive of the surviving letters from the McMullen estate went under the hammer recently at Sotheby's of New York with a guide price of 70 to $100,000. Born in Donegal, Ireland in 1785, John McMullen immigrated to the U.S., first to Baltimore, Maryland, and then to Savannah, Georgia. In 1810, he married Esther Espadas Cummings, a widow with two children. Apparently, she had some Spanish connections, which may have contributed to the decision to move, and they moved the whole family to the boomtown of Matamoros, Mexico, which was newly independent Mexico in the early 1820s. There, Esther and John adopted another child, a nine-year-old boy named Jose Antonio de Jesus, while one of Esther's children from her first marriage married a Sligo man named James McGloin. Together, McMullen and McGloin established a merchandising business which quickly became successful. The ambitious pair soon discovered that there was a bigger prize to be had because the Mexican government was giving large land grants, known as impresas, to anyone who could colonize the vast empty acres of Texas. There was one stipulation. Only Catholics could apply. With Irish immigrants arriving in New York in droves, it must have seemed like a no-brainer and by Christmas of 1829, McMullen and McGloin had settled some 200 Irish families on an area of prime land which stretched from the Nueces 
to the Medina rivers. Many setbacks occurred. There were outbreaks of cholera. There were threats from local native tribes. And as a result, a lot of the Irish colonists left. And as the 1830s wore on, political disturbances escalated into outright revolution as Texas asserted its right to self-governance. A flavor of the times can be had from one of the letters written to McMullen from an unknown colonist that comments on the local elections of 1834 and complains that promised land grants had not been made. Following the War of Texas Independence in 1836, McMullen gave up the colonization idea. He sold most of his land to his son-in-law, McGloin, and settled at San Antonio, where he became a successful merchant and farmer. He kept a foot in politics, too, serving as temporary president of the General Council of the all-new Texican Republic. All the while, he was buying up land, and by the mid-1840s, he was a wealthy man, a familiar and impressive figure in his black cape and black hat on the streets of San Antonio. It all came to a shocking end on the night of January 20th, 1853, when an unknown assailant entered McMullen's home, bound and gagged him and slit his throat, leaving him to bleed to death. A nephew of McMullen arrived in Texas from Pennsylvania to claim the estate left by his uncle, and it was eventually split between the McMullens and the McGloins. Many of the letters in the auction were written to the younger John McMullen by Jacob Welder, a German-born lawyer and newspaper publisher who had settled San Antonio in 1852. In the letters found for the auction, there was a letter that described a witness who found the elder John McMullen dead and the circumstances which he found the man. It was quite an upsetting thing to have this very wealthy man be murdered, to be victimized at all was upsetting, but to have him murdered was just unheard of. The story of John McMullen is terrible and tragic, but that's not the end of it. His son-in-law, James McGloin, had sold all of his interest and moved to San Patricio, which is about 150 miles from San Antonio, where he too became a businessman. They did maintain a good relationship by mail and occasional visits. One chilly rainy night in January of 1853, James McGloin was up late doing his accounts when he heard a sound at his front door. Before he could get up to open it, it opened on its own and he was confronted by a horrifying sight. There stood his father-in-law, John McMullen, his shirt front covered in blood. As the speechless McGloin watched, McMullen tilted his head back. McGloin saw that there was a hideous great slash across his throat. McGloin finally managed to croak, What do you want, John? There was no answer. McMullen simply vanished, leaving a shaken McGloin looking out an open door at the blowing ring. McGloin called his young nephew Pat to saddle his horse for him. And while Pat did so, McGloin told him of the terrible apparition he had just seen. Then he sprang into the saddle and was on his way. Despite the weather conditions, it says that McGloin made it to San Antonio by sunset of the next day. He was met by the news that his father-in-law and best friend was indeed dead. He had been killed in a store robbery gone badly wrong. McGloin was taken to see the body. Having been left alone with the casket, he reached down and pulled back McMullen's collar. The slash across his throat that McGloin had seen the night before was closed now 
sewn back together with stitches. Why did John McMullen appear to James McGloin 150 miles away on the night of his murder? Could it have been out of despair for having been murdered? Was it that he was letting his son-in-law and friend know that he was dead and that someone would need to come take care of it? Was he looking for justice? It's unknown. But it's the only time John McMullen is reported to have appeared to anyone. One man a murderer. One man a murder victim. One apparently continues to appear, perhaps intent on finishing his murderous plans. The other apparently appeared once to inform his friend of his murder. Some more Texas ghost tales, spook stories for you. I told you that Texas highways were haunted. That seems to be the case here. I want to add a couple of short stories in here. Um, near personal experiences. They didn't happen to me, but one happened to my brother and one happened to a friend of mine. On U.S. Highway 77, which runs north-south in Texas and goes, I believe, all the way up to Chicago, Illinois, there is a small hamlet called Warda, W-A-R-D-A. Warda lays between Giddings and LaGrange to the south. And it's just a basically a wide spot in the road. Uh, there are people that live there, but it's it's not incorporated. It's just boom, you go through it. Well, one night, my brother and some friends were coming back from a dance, probably in Schulenburg, I'm guessing. And of course, it's two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock maybe. I don't know. And the other three guys in the car were asleep, and. My brother was driving the car. And as they passed through this little hamlet of Warda, my brother sees an old woman pushing a wheelbarrow in the ditch beside the road. And he goes past her and realizes what he just saw, so he wanted to turn around and see if she needed help. So he woke the other guys up as he turned the car around. And as they went back, they couldn't find the, the woman with the wheelbarrow. They couldn't find the woman or the wheelbarrow. This is an entity that is known as the Warda Witch. People apparently have seen her in this very fashion. A lot of people know about this story, uh, uh, or at least this part, this entity. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it could be. Uh, I don't think it's mass hysteria because the people are so varied who know about this and they don't have any connections between them. So I'm just happy that I don't drive US 77 South very much because I don't know what I would do if I saw her. The next story is from a friend of mine back in the days when I ran around in Giddings. And ran around doesn't mean getting into trouble. Ran around means I worked there, I had friends there, 
we hung out there but we all ran around together this young man lived behind the city park and at that time the city park was not very large it had a baseball field or two on one end and it had like picnic areas on the other end my friend tells the story that he was going home late one night after doing whatever you do in Giddings at late at night and he decided to drive around the park and as he was driving around he went around to the back side of the park which is not very far from the front side of the park because this is not a very big park and he sees a woman walking alongside the road he finds it odd but him being a virile young man he's going to be the the uh, cowboy superman and he rolls his window down pulls up next to her and asks her if she needs a ride and said she was soaking wet had long black hair and was wrapped up in like a white sheet and said she turned and looked at him with such a look that the cowboy superman left and the cowboy coward took over and he floorboarded his truck and got out of the park and went home I don't know where the story came from I've never heard it from anybody else of it happening to them in that park by the way I'm getting chills while I'm telling this story I believe this young man because he was terrified when he told the story and he wasn't that good of a storyteller to begin with but he told that story with such feeling and and conviction in his own soul that he had seen this thing so yes texas roadways are haunted uh we may not have phantom hitchhikers much i don't hear much of them but we do have some strange things we have lights along highways we have trains that you can hear running alongside the road when there's no tracks different places different things like that remember that you can download the real paranormal activity app from your app stores be it apple or android install those on your device and you can get to all of the rpa shows that includes Aaron Hunter with Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast. Aaron Frail with Aaron's Horror Show. Terry's Mysterious Moments. And on occasional Thursdays, Patrick Sean Jones with The Sandman Lullaby. We've included two new shows, and these two new shows are video programs from Full Dark Productions and The Witch Hour. And they are new to RPA, so welcome them to the family. Anyway, that's it for this week, and we'll talk to you later. Have a good week.